my mic is really hot. Like I'm in an echo chamber up here. <laughs> Isaiah 24 serves as a capstone to chapters 13 through 23. And if you want to break Isaiah into sections, that's how you would break it down. 1 through 12 is really Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, judgment upon specifically the nation of Israel. We then get to chapter 13 and and chapter 13 all the way up through chapter 23 really serves as a recapitulation of that judgment, but this time it is spoken against, through these oracles, spoken against the nations that surround Israel and the nations that have come up against them and oppressed them. And we can kind of say from Babylon in chapter 13 to Tyre in chapter 23, the Lord's judgment has been spoken as being poured out upon not only Israel, but upon the nations that surround Israel. And these judgments take a particular historical form in Isaiah's day, but Isaiah intends these judgments to speak far beyond his own day um, and even far into the future as he prophesies not only about the nations in his own time, but prophesies about this cosmic battle, as it were, this cosmic battle between the two seeds, the seed of the serpent opposing the seed of the woman, going back to Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah up to this point has spoken in broad strokes of judgment with these narrow beams of salvation shining through as a silver lining. And Isaiah has demonstrated that God's plan for salvation through judgment is not only for Israel, but for the nations with this capstone of his argument in 13 through 23 coming in chapter 19 where Isaiah declares that not only will Israel be God's people, but they will be a third part with Egypt and with Assyria and they will all worship the Lord together. Isaiah has demonstrated that the pattern that he set in chapters 1 through 12 of judgment for Israel poured out by means of the attack by Assyria has now been recapitulated as what we might call eschatological escalation. In other words, the pattern of Israel's judgment at the hands of Assyria is in the past is now repeated in chapter 24 as the pattern of the world's judgment at the hands of God himself in the future. So chapter 24 really summarizes and rounds out these 10 chapters of judgment upon the world, chapter 13 through chapter 23. And Isaiah, the prophet, now speaks of that day. And when we hear that phrase, that day, in the scriptures, that's always an indicator of the end of all things. It's eschatological. It's future-facing. What will happen in the end? When Isaiah says, in that day, he's telling you what will happen in the end. God's judgment is even now being stored up and it will be poured out fully and finally from his holy throne in that day. But as is Isaiah's tendency and as is his pattern, he does not declare judgment without also declaring the silver strand of salvation. Salvation in the midst of the turmoil of judgment. Therefore, I will seek to demonstrate today from Isaiah 24 that at the end of the world, at the end of all things, when God pours out his wrath for a final time on evil, in the midst of that outpouring of wrath, he will yet preserve a remnant, a remnant who will reign with their Savior for his glory. 
five-point outline today, five major movements in the chapter. I've called them chapter 24, verses 1 through 6. We've called that wasted earth. Chapter 24, verses 7 through 7 through 12, we'll say, is uh, what I've called the withered vine. And then our third section is Isaiah's woeful vision. That's verse 14 down through verse 16. We've seen, we see chapter 24, verses 17 down through 20, the weighty transgression. And then finally, at the end, verses 21 through 23, is the glorious reign. Each movement builds upon patterns that have either been set by Isaiah, as he's written up to this point, or for Isaiah by other biblical authors, primarily Moses, and we'll see that today. And he's speaking in patterns of judgment that help us understand exactly what this judgment will look like in the end. What is going to happen to the inhabitants of earth in the end, Isaiah tells us, and he tells us in the terms of judgments that have already been poured out in history. And we're going to take a look at some of those judgments even today. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Look at Isaiah's vision of a wasted earth. Isaiah's call to behold there in chapter, in in verse 1, behold, the earth lays waste. That's a a call to embark with Isaiah into what scholars call an Isianic vision. And we've seen this before in a more famous vision of Isaiah's in chapter 6, where he beholds the Lord in his glory in the throne room. Isaiah's calling his readers, us, to look upon and see that which he sees. He says, behold, look with me. Yahweh lays the earth waste. He begins this description with powerful and colorful language in these first six verses of the chapter. Verse one, it's a rapid fire sequence of descriptors. What does he say? He lays the earth waste. He devastates it. He distorts its surface. He scatters its inhabitants. Boom, 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 boom. Rapid fire sequence of four judgments that come from the throne of God upon the inhabitants of the earth. It's an apocalyptic scene. At this point, just in verse 1, it's like, wow, nothing is going to survive this judgment. Verse 2, the judgment is indiscriminate. God doesn't pick and choose who he's going to pour out his judgment upon. What What does the text say? The people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. There are class distinctions in cultures, and Isaiah says God doesn't care about the class distinctions. Verse 3 circles back to verse 1 with emphasis. Not only will the Lord lay the earth waste, he will completely lay it waste there in verse 3. And not only will it be despoiled, it will be completely despoiled. The word there might be translated plundered. These actions are complete, right? In other words... The wasting of the earth, the plundering of the earth is not partial. God is not pulling any punches with this judgment. Verse 4, we we see the response of the earth. What happens as judgment is being poured out upon them in this future day? The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people, the exalted people of the earth fade away. They mourn, they wither, they fade Yahweh's judgment cannot be withstood. Verse 5 describes the reason for the wasting of the earth. Why is God pouring out his wrath on earth? Verse 5, the earth has become polluted by its 
inhabitants poisoned, as it were, by the people that live there. And how does this pollution occur? It doesn't have anything to do with greenhouse gases or renewable energy. What brings about the pollution is the transgressing, the violating, and the breaking of the everlasting covenant there in verse 5. Then there's a fourfold result that's described in verse 6. A curse devours the earth. Those who live in the earth are held guilty. The inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. In other words, the wasting of the earth described in these verses is brought about by its own inhabitants. The judgment of God poured out on earth is deserved. It is earned as a wage by those who live upon it. It's bleak, but there is hope. Let's dig a little bit deeper into what's going on here. If we want to understand Isaiah, we have to understand the literary context in which he wrote. Isaiah is not just, wow, I'm Isaiah, I've been called as a prophet by God, so I'm going to go and speak whatever God tells me. No, Isaiah is speaking in the context of the prophets that came before him, namely Moses. Isaiah, I would contend with you this morning, is an expert in the writings of Moses, and we see that as he references all kinds of things that Moses wrote in these verses. Let's take a look. Isaiah's description of judgment follows a pattern that Moses sets three ways. How does Isaiah describe the judgment here? They're scattered in verse 1. Who else was scattered in the Old Testament? All the peoples of the earth that gathered together and tried to make themselves God at the Tower of Babel. What did he do? He confused their languages and then he scattered them. That is the first time that this word here translated scattered its inhabitants. That phrase occurs verbatim at the Tower of Babel. God's judgment in the end will be like the confusing and scattering judgment that was poured out on the earth at Babel. Not only will it be a Babel-like judgment, it will also be a flood-like judgment. The language of wasting and despoiling, mourning and withering, fading in verses 3 and 4 reflect the language of God in Genesis 6 before Noah's flood when he vows to do what? Blot mankind off the face of the earth. The, the, The linguistic connection there is strong between those two words. The blotting, the wasting, the despoiling, the mourning, the withering, the fading. It will be a judgment like Babel. It will be a judgment like the flood. And third, the devouring curse of verse 6 mirrors the devouring curse of Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit, a curse devours them and the earth around them. In the end, that same curse will still be devouring the earth and its inhabitants. Isaiah wants to frame his prophecy of God's future judgment upon the earth in terms of those three very earliest descriptions of God's judgment in the Old Testament, like Adam's being kicked out of the garden, the flood that comes upon the earth, and the scattering at Babel. But not only does the description of judgment parallel the prior patterns of the Old Testament, the cause of the judgment as described in verse 5, also follows Old Testament patterns. What is the cause? Pollution. There in verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. Some translations might say defiled. This word is a common word in the Old Testament, typically translated godless. You can say that the inhabitants of the earth removed God 
from before their eyes and from before the face of the earth, or at least they attempted to. God's not going anywhere, as we can see here in the text. How did they do this? How did they remove God from the picture? How did they try to remove God from the face of the earth? Three things that lead to this pollution. Isaiah says, transgressed laws, violated statues, broke the everlasting covenant. Let's break that down. They first transgressed laws. This is a weird word, transgress. It's another common word in the Old Testament. And really it means literally to pass through something. To pass through something. And one of the earliest occurrences of this word in the Old Testament is actually when God himself passed through the land of Egypt, smiting and tearing down Egypt by destroying the firstborn before the night of the Passover. What's the significance here? Why would, why would, why would Isaiah draw this connection? Why would he say that the inhabitants of earth have done to the law the same thing that Yahweh did to the land of Egypt in smiting the firstborn? The terrifying irony here, or really the parallel before we get to the irony, as God passed through Egypt to pour out judgment on them, Isaiah indicates here that the inhabitants of earth pass through the law, the Torah, the commands of God to pour out judgment on it. That sounds a little bit weird, a little bit crazy. The irony is that the people have done two things. They've put themselves in the place of God as able to cast down judgment, but not only have they put themselves in the place of God to cast down judgment, they've put themselves in the place of God to cast judgment down on God. What have the inhabitants of the earth done? They have elevated themselves. They have raised themselves so far above their station that they now look down on God and judge him and judge his laws and say, God, you don't know very well but I know a lot better. And that sounds a little familiar to the day in which we live, does it not? There's a second irony for Isaiah. This is incredibly interesting in these original languages in the Hebrew text. The word transgress, which I would translate pass through, is also a pun. It's a pun on the Hebrew word for Hebrew. If you do a lexical study of this word translated transgressed, more often than not, it's simply translated as a proper noun, the Hebrews. What is Isaiah saying? What is Isaiah condemning the earth for? He is saying that in the same way that the Hebrews treated the law, forsaking it and walking away from it. If you've been with us in Zach's class in Hosea, you know what that looks like. If you've been with us in Deuteronomy, you know what that looks like. They walk away, they turn away from the law, and what Isaiah now accuses the whole earth of is doing to the law of God the same thing that the Israelites did. That's a condemning judgment, not only on the Israelites, but also on the entire earth. Isaiah positions Israel as a type of the world. The Hebrews are a prototype of what would be to come. What Israel is guilty of, the world is guilty of. What Israel is guilty of, not only is the whole, world, Earl, the whole world collectively guilty of, but each individual inhabitant as well. The earth attempts to stand in judgment over God and his law, putting themselves in his place. 
but they also violate statutes. The, the literal translation here might say exchange, the, that the, the people have exchanged the good law of God, the good statutes of God for something else. And what is that? Isaiah doesn't provide any context, but the Apostle Paul takes up the argument in Romans 1. Paul uses the word exchange three times in that chapter, verse Chapter Romans 1, verse 21, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In verse 27, they exchanged the created natural function of their bodies for that which is unnatural and foreign to the created order. Paul thus expounds Isaiah in this way. The inhabitants of the earth in Isaiah 24 have exchanged the true, glorious, and natural statutes of God's law for false, debased, and unnatural principles of their own making. So not only do they place themselves in judgment above God and his law, they also exchange the good and the true and the beautiful of God's law, and they flip that and they make it into something of their own creation, a debased and defiled version of their own laws. Finally, number three, what is the third thing that pollutes the earth here? They break the everlasting covenant. This word broke is always given in the Old Testament in the covenant context, first with Abraham, then with the nation of Israel, Genesis 17, Leviticus 26. Moses describes in Leviticus 26 the breaking of the covenant as not obeying, not carrying out the commandments, rejecting the statutes, and abhorring the ordinances. It is important to note that contextually for Isaiah, the only time that a covenant breach ever happens is in the context of the nation of Israel. Never before in God's word is the world, all the inhabitants of the earth being described as breaking the covenant. So again, what has been previously applied to Israel is now applied to the earth and to all of its inhabitants. So, the description of the judgment, the cause of the judgment, are built upon the prior context of the Old Testament, and now we see the outcome. What is the outcome of the judgment? We saw that there are four parts to it. A curse devours the earth, those who live in it are held guilty, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, few men are left. A curse devours the earth. Isaiah is full of puns today, is he not? The, a curse devours the earth. That sounds awfully similar in the Hebrew to the curse of Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? Same, it's the same exact words here. Adam devours the fruit or eats it, and he's cursed along with the whole world. Now, that same curse that Adam gave birth to by devouring now flips around and devours all of Adam's descendants. The literary, the, the literary connections here are, are compelling. Moses describes the devouring of the earth as being overcome by thorns and thistles in Genesis 3, and Isaiah recapitulates that and extends it beyond and says it's, it's going to be a complete wasteland. It's going to be totally despoiled, completely wasted, completely despoiled there in verse 3. The second outcome, those who live in it are held guilty, again returning to Genesis 3, as Adam was put on trial, as it were, by God, and Adam was then held guilty of devouring the fruit, so also the earth and its inhabitants are held guilty of transgressing laws, violating statutes, breaking the covenant. 
the inhabitants of the earth, thirdly, are burned there in verse 6. Burned, that's a strange word. In fact, it's so strange in the Hebrew that it doesn't occur anywhere else, either in the Bible or in any other literature that we have. Nobody really knows what this word translated here, burned, means. I would, I would tend to maybe translate it something like, um, like decrease. Why? Because that second line there, it says few men are left. So in other words, we think of the, the burning as maybe less of a burning and more of a reaping or a culling, a trimming, right? It, things are being taken away. The bad things are being taken away, so much so that there are only a few men that are left, and that's the fourth outcome. Few men are left. This is an interesting phrase, and when we want to talk about Isaiah pronouncing judgment, but then in the midst of that judgment providing hope, this is where the hope is found in verses 1 through 6, this last line. What does it say in the English there? Few men are left. We've described up to this point that the, the wasting and the despoiling of the earth is complete. It's, it's, it's broad brush destruction. Yet, in the midst of that, not everyone is gone. Isaiah could have said, everyone's gone. There's nobody left. But that's not true. There are a few men left. This is so interesting to me. I'm kind of, I'm like nerding out right now about this. This word here translated men or man is not the normal word for man in the Old Testament. It is translated man at other times, but the normal Hebrew word for man, as you might suspect, is Adam, Adam, man. This word translated man is also a proper name, but it's not Adam, it is Enosh. Who's Enosh? I know Enoch walked with God and then was taken, but who's Enosh? Enosh is at the end, appears at the end of Genesis chapter 4. What happens at the end, what happens in Genesis chapter 4? The beginning of the chapter, Cain and Abel get in a big fight. Cain kills Abel. Abel was, Abel and his sacrifice were pleasing to God. Cain was not. Abel is killed by Cain. Cain gets cursed and banished in the same way that his father got cursed and banished. But what happens to Abel? Abel was understood by his mother Eve to be the, the man-child that bears the seed, the promised seed of the woman. Abel is gone. Abel is dead. How will the seed that was promised survive? God gives Adam and Eve another son. His name is Seth. Seth gives birth to Enosh. Doesn't give birth, but fathers, Enosh. Enosh then becomes representative of this line of the remnant. So when we want to talk about a remnant who reigns, it starts with Enosh. And throughout the Old Testament, Enosh is proclaimed to be this patriarch of the remnant. And how do we know this? Trace Enosh's lineage down just a few more generations, like five or six generations, and who do we have? Noah. Would you agree with me that Noah is one of a few men who were left? When God judged the earth in the flood, who was left? Noah and his family, eight total people. I would say that categorized as a few people that are left. A few, a few 
men in the line of Enosh are left. For Noah, it was his physical line. For this remnant, it's a spiritual understanding. These few men that are left are of the line and the blessing of Enosh. Just as the seed was preserved through Seth and Enosh and Noah, so also that same seed will be preserved through a remnant in that day. The hope of Isaiah is not that the world would be 100% despoiled, 100% laid waste, but that there would be a remnant. There would be, however small, a group of faithful people at the end who would be left and who would survive the judgment of God. Isaiah calls us in this opening, these opening verses to behold this wasted earth. His wasted earth invokes the imagery of the most awful and terrifying judgments in human history, whether it's the garden, whether it's the flood, whether it's Babel, whether it's Egypt, and brings them all together and applies them not just to one person, not just to one nation, but to the entire earth and all of the inhabitants therein. Isaiah uses this imagery that points back to prior judgments in the Old Testament on purpose. The judgment that is coming in that day, the judgment that awaits the earth in the final day, will be like all of these other judgments, combined together, and then some. The world has not yet seen anything like the devastation and the waste that it will see in that final day. Yet in the midst of the judgment, hope remains. Hope in the form of the remaining few, the remnant who bear the name and blessing of Enosh. Isaiah wants the entire world, Babylon to Tyre, everyone in between to know this. You have experienced God's judgment as poured out through foreign powers and mighty kings. But you have not yet experienced God's judgment as poured out directly from his hand. In that day, the devastation will be absolute. There will be no discrimination in that day. All will be laid waste. And the likes of this judgment, no one has yet seen. For it encompasses both the magnitude and the majesty of all other judgments, from Adam to Egypt to Babel. It's a lot of data. That's a lot lot to take in. What does this mean for us? Let me pose the question to all of us here this morning. Are we part of the few that are left are we part of the remnant who remain do we see as isaiah calls us to see the picture of devastation that is coming isaiah's vision and his sharing of that vision with us is a gift of grace Isaiah is showing us what is going to happen at the end before it happens so that it might serve to us as a warning to turn and repent. What must we do then? We must pray that God would have mercy on us and count us among the few men who are left and pray that God would pour out on us not the judgment that awaits the inhabitants of the earth but that he would pour out on us the blessing of Enosh, the blessing of the remnant. And the grace of the gospel, of course, is that the line of Enosh has been preserved. Luke 3 traces Enosh's legacy 4,000 years down the line to Jesus Christ. Enosh bore the seed of the woman, promised to crush the seed of the serpent. And as the firstborn of many brethren, Christ now freely offers us the blessing of Enosh. He offers us a place among the remnant. He spares us from the wrath that is even now being stored up to be poured out 
in that day. Verses 1 through 6 are the overture of judgment. We will now jump into the stanzas of judgment as we see here our next point, the withered vine, 7 through 13. Isaiah paints a vivid and poetic picture here, and he again invokes imagery that comes from prior places in the Old Testament. Wine and vineyards, you might call it uh, viticulture. That's what it's called. I looked it up. It's real. It's like agriculture, but specifically for grapes and olives. This is a staple in the ancient Near East. It's a source of food and income. A vineyard vineyard is associated with the blessings of the gods, and if you have a good vineyard, you are blessed by whatever god you worshipped in in those uh, pagan nations, and the Israelites especially understood that a fruitful vineyard was a blessing from Yahweh. But vineyards also have a figural significance in the development of these biblical patterns of promise. starts with Moses in Genesis 9. What is the first thing that Noah does after he is blessed by God in his covenant after the ark lands? He plants a vineyard. He gives Noah dominion over the earth as he gave it to Adam. He commands him to be fruitful and multiply as he commanded Adam. And then just as Adam was placed in a garden, so Noah is placed in a vineyard at its very first appearance. The very first time a vineyard ever appears in God's word, it is a sign of blessing. But if you continue the story, the fruit of Adam's garden proved to be his downfall and the fruit of Noah's vineyard proved to be his downfall. For what happens in the next verse, verse 21, he gets drunk. He has a whole bunch of other problems that develop in the following verses. Isaiah calls upon that same pattern as he invokes that imagery here in verse 7. He speaks of the new wine. The new wine mourns. The vine decays. All the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines cease. The noise of revelers stops, and the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it, and the city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter, and there is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished, desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. Isaiah speaks specifically of the new wine. Moses establishes the new wine early on as a sign of blessing. Every time that the blessing of the harvest comes to the nation of Israel, they celebrate with grain and new wine. And that's nowhere seen more clearly than in The blessing of Isaac on his trickster son Jacob in Genesis 27 where he blesses him with an abundance of grain and new wine. Moses continually speaks in his writings of the blessing of new wine. Wine is intimately associated with celebration and with blessing. We even see that with the presence of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. But Isaiah is reversing that picture here. New wine should be a sign of celebration and of joy and of rejoicing and of really kind of a big party. But what happens? The new wine does not rejoice, it mourns. The vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. Listen to the words here. You, you, you just heard it, right? Merry-hearted, gaiety, noise, gaiety, singing songs, right? Chaos, outcry, all of these things. You might associate these things with a big party. I mean, let's, let's just face the facts. Isaiah is kind of describing the aftermath of a drunken party when you run out of wine. And that's what's happening when you have a big old celebration in the ancient Near East. 
because the vine was fruitful, you celebrate. But that's not the picture here for Isaiah. He describes the end of the party. As God pours his judgment down, it is seen as a picture of no more parties, no more fun, no more singing, no more revelry, no more gaiety. The noise of celebration turns to the noise of lament. And the beginning is desolation and the end is ruins. What is Isaiah's point here? Adam's garden and Noah's vineyard were places of blessing. The physical environment in which God blessed his people with economic and agricultural abundance and more importantly where he blessed them with his own presence. This pattern is escalated in the form of the land of Israel which is also referred to as a vine and a vineyard. Asaph referred to Israel as a choice vine in Psalm 80. And Isaiah, back in Isaiah 5, called Israel the vineyard of God. Israel's intended design was as the Garden of Eden and as Noah's vineyard, a place of blessed refuge for the people of God who believed in God. But just like Adam and Noah before them, Israel broke the everlasting covenant. Adam was removed from his garden. Noah was removed from his vineyard. And Israel was removed from their land, all because they broke the everlasting covenant. We don't have time to read all of it, but I encourage you to write down Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, and read that for your reference later. The reality of Israel's exile was that they were removed from their land of blessing and of refuge because they were a vine who produced worthless fruit. Isaiah now escalates that to the entire earth and says everyone on earth has produced worthless fruit. And just as Israel was removed from their land, so also the inhabitants of earth will be removed from their land. The call of Isaiah then is to Babylon and to Tyre, to Moab and to Damascus. As Adam, Noah, and Israel were given vineyards, you also, inhabitants of the earth, have been given a vineyard here in verses 7 through 12. But just as they, Adam, Noah, and Israel, broke the everlasting covenant and were banished from their vineyards, so also you have broken the everlasting covenant and will be banished from the vineyard. But here's where the terror becomes truly immense. Adam, Noah, and Israel all had somewhere to go when they were banished. Adam went east of Eden. Noah went to his tent. Israel went to Assyria and to Babylon. But if the entire earth is receiving that same type of judgment, where else is there to go to escape the judgment of God when it is poured out not locally, but globally? Jesus tells us where that banishing happens, where that exile happens. It's not to a different place on earth. It's not to a different nation. It's not east of Eden. Jesus tells us that it is into the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Isaiah likens the earth here to a withered vineyard laid waste by the judgment of God poured out on its covenant-breaking inhabitants. As Adam, Noah, and Israel were banished from their vineyards, a day is coming where the law transgressors, the statute violators, and the covenant breakers will be banished, exiled, and thrown out forever. Like the wicked and lazy servant in the parable of the talents in Matthew 24, and like the goats at the great white throne in Matthew 25, and like the fruitless branches of John 15, the merry-hearted revelers will revel no more. The vineyard will be laid waste and the inhabitants will be banished, thrown out, and burned. It's a solemn judgment. It may make your stomach turn a little bit. It doesn't really make you feel very good to think about it. But that's Isaiah's point. Nevertheless, as a remnant was preserved for Adam in the line of Enosh and a remnant was preserved for Noah in the line of Shem and a remnant for Israel was preserved in the lines of Judah and Benjamin, so also there will be a remnant preserved for the world. And it is to that remnant that we turn now as we encounter Isaiah's woeful vision. Verses 13 down through 16. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over, they raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Isaiah immediately offers an interpretation of what's going on in verses 7 through 12 there in verse 13. The wasting judgment that withers the vine is likened to the shaking of an olive tree. And that's, if you're familiar with olive trees or grape trees, that's still to this day how you harvest grapes and olives. It used to be you had to do it by hand. Now you do it with a machine. It literally reaches out its claws. And the olives just fall from the tree. And that's how you harvest olives, that's how you harvest grapes, and there's a sheet right underneath, and you wrap it up, and you gather all the olives and all the grapes. And that's the idea there, the shaking of the olive tree. What does he say? Thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree. He likens it there to that process of harvest. But what, is, what happens there when the, shaking, when the olive tree is shaken there are gleanings left over. These are the same gleanings of Leviticus 19 where the people of Israel were instructed to not gather what was left, right? Eventually, if you shake the olive tree enough, some of those olives are gonna miss the sheet. Not all the olives are gonna come off the tree. There's gonna be some left, and so what would happen is the alien, the orphan, and the widow would come through, and they would pick the remaining grapes and the remaining olives off the vine to feed themselves. That's called gleaning. And that was the pattern that was set by Moses in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24. Isaiah then likens the judgment described in verses 1 through 12 to the shaking of the olive tree and the grapevine for the harvest. The tree of the earth and the vine of its inhabitants, as it were, are laid waste, left desolate and fruitless as retribution for the law-transgressing, statue-violating, covenant-breaking pollution perpetrated by the inhabitants of earth. 
There is no joy in the new wine. There is no revelry in the abundance of harvest, for they have been shaken like a tree in harvest. But in the midst of the judgment, Isaiah proclaims hope in the third line of verse 13. There will be gleanings at the end of this harvest. Not all of the olives, not all of the grapes will come off the tree and be gathered and taken away. To echo the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, as God reaps in judgment, he will not go over the grapevine, he will not go over the olive tree twice. Some will remain. Just as Boaz did not reap his vineyard twice, but left the gleanings to bless the alien, the orphan, the widow, Ruth. So in the end, as God reaps the earth in judgment, gleanings will remain. Those gleanings are not to feed people. Those gleanings are people. The gleanings are the same few for Isaiah that he mentioned in verse 6. Few men are left. Gleanings remain in verse 13. The response then is joy from east to west. The gleanings, the few who remain, the remnant, the blessed line of Enosh, cry out from east to west the praise of the Lord. God left a remnant for Adam and his grandson Enosh. Boaz left a remnant for Ruth and the gleanings of his field. So God leaves a remnant for his own glory in this joyful singing group of verses 14 and 15. And this was the hope of Israel in Isaiah's day. They were created as a beloved choice and fertile vine. They were cared for by their father, the vine dresser. But they produced law transgressing, statue violating, covenant breaking grapes. Worthless grapes. So Yahweh removes the hedge, breaks down the wall, and Israel is consumed, trampled, wasted, consumed by briars and thorns. And then they are carried off by a distant nation, banished and exiled. That's from Isaiah chapter 5. But then God pauses his revelation to Ezekiel in chapter 5 and takes him in chapter 6 to the throne room where he sees the glory and the majesty of God as he's surrounded by worshipers just as he is here in verses 14 and 15. Isaiah is commissioned there in chapter 6 and the message of Isaiah, that he's given by the Lord, is the message of chapter 5 that the Lord will lay waste the vineyard. Judgment will come to Israel. And it did. But if you go to the end of chapter 6, the hope and the promise that is given to Isaiah is that a tenth portion will remain. A stump containing the holy seed, which will be the means of God's mercy and the object of Israel's hope, will remain in the midst of judgment. Let me be abundantly clear with you all this morning. There is hope. And Israel's hope was fulfilled at the decree of Cyrus. We know that the people came back. They came back. They rebuilt the temple and they committed themselves to following the laws of Moses. A few men of the blessed line of Enosh, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, 
brought the nation back to the land and produced the good grapes of covenant obedience. Israel's hope is our hope. A remnant is still being gathered even today. The blessed line of Enosh remains today, rejoicing from east to west at the preserving and persevering mercy of God. Now Isaiah could just leave us here, leave us on a high note. Come on, Isaiah, this has been so bad and so hard up to this point. But he doesn't. What does he do there in verse 16? But I say, woe to me, woe to me, a loss for me treacherous deal treacherously isaiah cried out in anguish at chapter six at the sight of a holy and majestic and glorious king so now he cries out at the treachery that still remains for though isaiah holds fast the hope of the remnant he still understands that judgment must come the remnant will survive but that does not mean that the judgment will not still happen therefore isaiah is woeful at the sight of the weighty transgression of the inhabitants of the earth the judgment that awaits them. And it is to that weighty transgression that we turn now, verses 17 through 20. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare, for the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. Isaiah is woeful because of this judgment that remains for those who are treacherous against Yahweh, a threefold retributive punishment it mirrors the threefold sin terror for covenant breakers pits for statute violators and snares for law transgressors there's a progression here look at it verse 17 terror pit and snare confront you then it will be that he who flees the report that really should be the word terror it's the same word there he who flees the report of the terror will fall into the pit and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught into the snare you can't escape the report comes of the terror and you run away, you fall into a hole in the ground, you climb out of the hole in the ground and you get caught in a snare. The idea is that you got yanked up by your ankle and you're hanging upside down, dangling from a tree like an animal in the forest who's been caught. God's judgment is coming, you cannot escape. That is the terror that confronts the inhabitants of earth. The punishment fits the crime in verse 20. What was, what was going on? A big drunken party in 7 through 12. God now pours out judgment, judgment that is so severe and so intense upon the earth that the earth itself reels and totters like the drunkards that he described in 7 through 12. And then what's the end? The end of verse 20, transgression is heavy upon it and the earth will fall. Adam was able to go east of Eden. Noah was able to go to his tent. Israel went to Babylon and Assyria and they eventually came back. In the final day of judgment, there will be no rising again. The judgment is final. That's the end game. 
for law transgressors and statute violators and covenant breakers. That is the end game for all the inhabitants of the earth. You fall into this terror, this pit, this snare, you do not escape. Let's pause for a moment. You feel the weight of that transgression. Isaiah sees a vision of the future in which the whole earth and all its inhabitants are punished for transgressing the law, violating the statutes, breaking the covenant of God. It is a future of waste, of withering, of woe, and of weighty transgression. There are no survivors. It's easy for us to look at this text and just make some observations and say, yeah, the inhabitants of the earth are pretty bad. But there's a glaring implication here that I think we need to draw out. Now, we're not a charismatic church, but I am going to ask you right now to raise your hands. Raise your hand if you're an inhabitant of the earth. Should be a 100% rate here of hands raised. We all live here on this earth. We all fit the category of inhabitant of earth. It's ominous. We are all inhabitants of earth, you and me. And if that's true, then Isaiah is clear. All of us are part of the pollution. All of us have transgressed the law. All of us have violated the statute. All of us have broken the covenant. Isaiah doesn't allow us to point our finger at Israel here like he does in chapters 1 through 12. This passage is not for Israel. This passage is for the entire earth. All of us have Hebrewed the law. None of us are one iota better than Israel. Just as Adam transgressed, just as Israel transgressed, we transgressed. We are the treacherous people who caused Isaiah to cry out in anguish. We are, you and me. Therefore, the terror and the pit and the snare is our fate the end game for us is the outpouring of God's wrath. The skies above and the earth beneath will be the agents of God's judgment upon us. Upon you and upon me. Do you feel the terror? I hope you do. But I also hope you ask this. Aren't there a few men left isn't there a gleaning? Isn't there a remnant? Isn't that the, hope, the hopeful promise of Israel and the hopeful promise of the earth is that a remnant would remain? Isaiah answers your question this morning with a resounding yes, and he joins the chorus of biblical writers in pointing to the hope of Israel and the hope of the world that there will be a remnant saved from the wrath to come. But before there can be mercy, there must be justice. Before a remnant can be saved at all, the wrath that was reserved for that remnant must be poured out on another. And so, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, descended from his throne on high, took on flesh, and became himself an inhabitant of earth, like you and like me. He did not pass 
through the Torah and judgment over it, but he meditated on the Torah day and night. He did not exchange the truth of God for a lie, but embodied the truth of God in his very being. He did not break the covenant, but fulfilled it down to the jot and to the tittle. Yet for the sake of the line of Enosh, so that the remnant might receive mercy, it pleased God to crush him. So he went obediently, willingly, humbly to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as the Son of Man was lifted up like a snake in the wilderness, Yahweh unleashed his fury. He laid his son waste. He devastated him. He distorted his body. The true and better vine withered before the burning wrath of the vine dresser. The gaiety ceased. The noise stopped. The Son of God was confronted by terror and by pit and by snare, and the earth responded in kind, quaking and swaying in darkness. With your transgressions and my transgressions heavy upon him, his head falls. It is finished. The wasting, withering, woeful wrath of Yahweh is complete. There is yet hope for the remnant. There is yet hope that there will be a gleaning for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. But the final line of Isaiah's pronouncement of judgment in verse 20 hangs heavy. The earth and her inhabitants will fall never to rise again. Will their substitute then remain fallen? No, I say no, for God raised Jesus from the dead. On the third day, in the glorious power of the Spirit, Christ was raised from the dead. The hope of the remnant is secure, for there will indeed be a few men left. In Christ, the descendants of Enosh There will be a few men left. In Christ, the descendant of Boaz, there will be a gleaning because of Christ's completed work. The remnant will sing praises from east to west into eternity. But as Isaiah says, judgment awaits all those who are not part of the remnant, not part of the gleaning, not part of the blessed line of Enosh. And this judgment is part of the glorious reign of Christ on the throne of his father. And Isaiah gives us an epilogue looking forward to the future of the reign of Christ. In that day then, as Isaiah describes it here in verse 21, the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high, the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. In that day, the day of the Lord, after many days, upon the return of the Son of Man in glory, this punishment described by Isaiah that was poured out and absorbed by Christ will be poured out again, this time on the entire earth. 
beginning with the Antichrist and the false prophets and Satan himself and ending with those dead before the great white throne whose names are not written in the book of life. The inhabitants of the earth are thrown into the lake of fire and then the earth itself passes away in fire. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for these things have passed away. And as I saw Jerusalem coming down, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun, nor of the moon, to shine on it. The sun will be ashamed, and the moon will be abashed, for the glory of God illumines the new creation. His glory is before his elders. And its lamp is the Lamb. John concludes, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Isaiah's vision is John's vision. The one who is the light of the world will give light to the world. The moon and the sun can retire. For the glory of God now finally illumines and fills the earth and his servants, the remnant, will serve him. And they will see his face and their na his name will be on their foreheads and they will reign with him forever. Isaiah's hope and now also our hope is that a remnant will be preserved. Even in the midst of destruction and that remnant, us, we will reign with Christ forever. Does that warm your heart and bring joy to your soul even this morning, knowing that in the midst of the insanity that surrounds us and in the midst of the greater insanity that we have to look forward to if the Lord tarries, our hope is that we will one day reign on high with Christ. For we abide in Him and He abides in us. Let me ask you this morning, are you part of the remnant? Is your name written in the book of life? You've seen what awaits the transgressors and the violators and the breakers of the covenant. You've also seen what awaits the remnant. So I urge you this morning, waste no more time. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that your name is found to be written in the Lamb's book of life. Let today be the day that we join the few men who are left. You need only repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust his death, trust his life, trust his resurrection. He alone saves. He alone brings mercy. If your name is found to be in the book of life today, I urge you, hold fast to your hope. In the midst of the insanity and the craziness that surrounds us in our world and the judgment that awaits Lay hold of the promise that though the earth is laid waste, we will be delivered in the last day. Though trials and tribulations befall us on every side, I urge you, lay hold of the promise that we will one day reign victoriously with Christ. Though our outer man is decaying day by day, lay hold of the promise that our inner man is being renewed and made ready for the glory that awaits us in that last day. Lay hold 
of these promises.